Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here. Um, you look great in your mask as usual. I was wearing a mask all day, and now that I don't have it on, I feel like my fly is down or something. <laughs> Something's missing. Got to get used to that. All right, um, let me remind you of some like foundational truths that we confess together. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3 describes a problem. And he says it this way, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. When James talks about it in more, I guess, descriptive terms, he says that every man is drug away and enticed by the evil desire within him. And there you have a picture of sin. When I was in college, the very first class I signed up for was a, a class called harmartiology, which is the study of sin. It's the Greek word for sin, harmartia. And it was used, it's an archery word, actually. It was used of an archer who pulls back his bow and, you know, supposed to hit the bullseye. And sin is not hitting the bullseye. Does that make sense? So with that kind of assumption that we're all working on the same uh, page as far as sin, biblical sin is concerned, let me ask you a question. How honest are you about your sin? How aware of your sin are you? I'm going to confess something that I think, uh, to be honest with you, I think we all share. And if I'm wrong, I apologize, but I bet I'm right. I find that my more natural inclination is to be more aware of your sin than my sin. Can I get an amen? But to be fair, and I, and I lament this too much, the older I get, the more my sin um, is always kind of working me over. Maybe you can relate to this, but it might be some present sin that I know not to do, that I do, or some neglect, and it overwhelms me. And, uh, but more than likely, it's some past sin, you know, something that was in my history, and I lay there at night, and I look at the ceiling, and I go, oh, gosh. And I ask questions, you know, of God and me, and sometimes it's the consequence of sin that wants to cripple me. You know, something that, <clears throat> that makes me think a certain way and, hey, you know, uh, what do people think or you don't have what it takes or you should do something else or just a constant barrage of things. Maybe you can relate to that. I, I think I'm not alone that some of those tendencies are in all sinners. I know that because sometimes I sit down with folks, some of you maybe or whatever, and We'll sit in a conversation, and to be honest with you, I'm not a deep agenda guy, but if the conversation just does its natural migration and we end up bumping into life and sin, it's always the same experience. When we get to sin, everyone gets quiet, and they just stare. I, I had a conversation with a friend this week, and no intention to get to it, it just happened, and he just stared at me. I mean, I could see his mind going a mile, like a million miles an hour, but he couldn't talk, didn't want to talk. I've been there. Have you? I think that's an experience we share, and I get it. I understand there's this 
you know, this, I don't know, condition of sin isolation, you know, when sin happens, it's just like a reverberation chamber. It's in your head and it just bounces off all the walls in your mind and it just doesn't have a place to go. I get it. I understand also that when sin is a part of our story, as it is in all of our stories, the attack of Satan is one of accusation, that as soon as you have something present or something past or whatever, he will come in, not audibly, he doesn't speak audibly to me, it's just like a sense you have in your soul, do you really love Jesus? Does he really love you? Would a Christian do that? Sometimes it can be a consequence of a good thing. I so desperately want to please God that the uh, sensitivity is so high that my inability to meet that desire equals somewhat of a spiritual sadness or depression or whatever, like I just can't pull it off. For what it's worth, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about that and some other subjects as it pertains to the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. It's, it really comes from this book, Gentle and Lowly. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but someone dropped it off at my door. Remember back when there was something as simple as just COVID to stay away from? And uh, I, I don't read a lot of extra books. I spend most of the time reading commentaries. So I had a lot of time. It was the quarantine. There's no place to go. And I laid down on the couch. And six hours later, I finished it. And I cried all the way through it. It's one of my top three ever um, the bookstore is not open now, but when it is, I highly recommend it. Um, but the bottom line is, what we want to do is kind of use it as a springboard. And a lot of what you're going to hear for the next four weeks will come from just different sections. We obviously, we can't teach a whole book, and we're not going to. But just to hop through some what we keep th- consider like key moments to really look at the heart of Christ for the condition of sin and sinners and suffering in our life. And so you'll hear some things that you might read if you pick up the book. But the first thing I thought we need to do, have to do, is start with a look at the heart of Christ. If we're going to get into subject matters that the heart of Christ affects, we better know the heart of Christ. Make sense? So when I read the book and I set it down, I thought to myself, this is one-on-one material. I thought if I could... If I could get in front of every person who put their faith and trust in Christ, that very day I'd hand them that book and say, you need to know how much you're loved. You need to know. It's like the beginning of what it is to be a Christian. And then I thought, but it's also the doctrinal thesis of Christian faith. It is, it's what every believer needs to just hang on to with white knuckles, who Christ is and how he is for you. And I thought, well, this is like, this spans the whole thing. And an amazing discipleship tool, I think, for getting close to what God feels for us. It is who Jesus is and how he feels about you and how he feels about you and how it affects you when you're discouraged, when you're tired, when you're spiritually dry, when you're worn out because of your failures, when you find yourself back in a sin that you've confessed a thousand times and made a promise to God that you would never do again and you do it again, when you're convinced that God is again disappointed with you. Like that's pretty much the relationship with God. You try and he just... If at all you can relate to that, then you're going to be encouraged, I think, by stopping for at least a brief 30 minutes and looking at the heart of Christ. So much in the Gospels tell us about Jesus and tell us about all the reasons he came, 
It presents to us the incarnation. That's how it begins. It presents to us the atonement and imputation of, of, of my sin to him, his righteousness for me. And we get all these wonderful doctrinal foundational pieces of who Christ is for the church. But there's only one place that Charles Spurgeon kind of indicated. Only one place in the scriptures where Jesus actually describes his own heart. So I think it's worth looking at. And it's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. And you're, you already know this passage, but I want you to really, really tune in to Christ, his words and his heart. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think there's seven words here, and that's all he says, specifically, like revealing his heart. I am gentle and lowly in heart. We've talked about this many times before, but when Scripture speaks of the heart, it's not talking about feelings, although feelings are an expression of a heart. That's a part of it. But when the scriptures talk about the heart, it's referring to the motivator of action. It's talking about the rudder, you know, the rudder of a person, the core of a person that explains what they do. So for instance, as an example, if you knew my heart, it would explain why I love Cowboys football. Yeah, a couple other Christians in here. That's awesome. I was, bo- I was raised in Dallas, Texas in the 60s when they began. So you, I can explain to you. I come by it honestly. Even though you hate them, I get it. It would explain why I get a lot of comfort by going into the garage and working on stuff. If you knew my heart, you would know that in every movie, any movie that shows a scene of a father, I cry. You're getting close to my heart. It's a heart that identifies us. So when Jesus decides to pull back the curtain on his heart, Of all the things he would say about himself, he says, I am gentle and lowly. He could have said a lot of things, couldn't he? He could have said, you know, I'm serious about sin or or, I'm, I'm so different than you. All true. But when he says, I want I want you to know this about me, he says, I'm gentle and lowly. The word gentle is a word that's used here and only three other places in scripture. You're familiar with some of them, I'm sure. When Jesus begins his, his discussion, when he starts preaching his word to people in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts with that idea that blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the king, the earth, right? Blessed are the meek, and that's the same word for gentle. In Matthew 21, he talks about that same word when he's speaking in prophetic ways of the, of the humble one coming, riding on a donkey, that, that, that gentle one. In 1 Peter, when Peter's describing the demeanor of a godly woman, that gentle and quiet spirit, there is that word, gentle. What it means is that Jesus isn't harsh or reactionary towards sinners. Uh, uh, Dane Ortland, who wrote the book, said he's not trigger happy. When I read it, I circled it and I said, well, that's not me. I am the exact opposite of Jesus. I'm harsh. I'm reactionary, I'm trigger happy, I don't want to be, I'm just telling you how it is, I can be that, I'm more inclined that way. 
that Jesus is the most, un, most understanding person in the entire universe because he's gentle. He also says that he's lowly. In most places, that same word is translated humble. You, you're familiar with James when he says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the lowly or humble. That's that same word. And it's important to understand that it's not referring to a quality or a character or a virtue. It's, it's actually speaking about a position of life. It's, it's talking about the kind of person who is unimpressive and lowly in position. That Jesus has put himself eye to eye with this. I'm not trigger happy and I'm here with you. Jesus reveals himself as lowly to communicate something very profound. To communicate how accessible and how approachable he is. The king of glory. He didn't have to get that close. He didn't have to take on human form. He didn't have to do anything, but he did for a reason. So that you and I could look him in the eye. And for him to sympathize with our weakness. And so everywhere you see what Jesus says about having him, knowing him, coming to him, it does not include having to clean yourself up. It doesn't include having to sort out moral things and build a ladder of moral behaviors to climb the ladder to appease your God. It has nothing to do with that. The minimum requirement is to be lowly too. To open yourself up to him. I mean, seriously, it's that simple. To admit you're lowly. Now, here, here's where we run into snags, right? Some people don't want to admit they're lowly. They don't want to look in the mirror of God's word and go, oh my gosh, it exposes me to the core of who I am. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and all I can do is unclean things. That's all I've got. But as Jesus says it, all you have to do is be lowly too. Let me, let me show you. In chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus describes for us who qualifies to come to him. Come to me all who what? Labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All who labor and are heavy laden. There's probably more to this, but let me just kind of give you a quick understanding of all who labor. And most of you, I think all of you know this. Those who labor are those who fight for rest without God. Because sin and distance from your creator creates all sorts of turmoil in the human heart. And so when you sense the turmoil, what do you do? What do you do? You fight for rest. You go for rest. You seek for rest. I just had a conversation with somebody about how crazy the world is right now. Crazy. Things are being burnt down, things are being broken, stolen, whatever, people are getting killed, all, all this kind of stuff. And I don't like it, but I understand it. People, according to the scriptures, who don't know Jesus are blind in their trespasses and sins. And what do you think when there's a brokenness someone perceives? What do you think a broken person does with brokenness? All they can use is broken means to deal with it. I can get angry, I can lose my temper, I can kill things, I can steal things, I can tear the place apart, I can I have to express it. I understand, but it won't equal rest. And I would tell you 
that what they need to hear is what Jesus says about himself. All who labor, all of you fighting for rest apart from me, come here, I got you. He says also, he call, those who qualify to come are those who are heavy laden, and those are people who are worn out by their failed attempts at rest without God. I've done it, I've done it, I've done it. I'll, this is my 60th year on the planet, so... August, you guys better celebrate. So when I get to 60, that's some kind of marker if I make it, right? If I, if I get there, I'm telling you, apart from Jesus, every core in my being is trying to create some version of peace, and I'm not happy with my version of peace. And here's what I know. Jesus, because he's gentle and lowly, invites those who have worn out themselves on trying to create peace without him to come. So just get this. Just let it sink in. What qualifies you and me for fellowship with Jesus? It's your burden. What grade do you have to make? Your weakness. What do you have to accomplish? Your failure. You bring all of the mess. That's what qualifies you. All your need, all your sin, all your exhaustion and nothing else. Dane says in this book that um, God's, God's rest is a gift, not a transaction, which is a great way of pushing back against every other religious system in the planet other than Orthodox Christianity because the backbone of everything else is man fix it. And we can't. Why is it a gift and not a transaction? Because he's gentle and lowly of heart and his heart is for the poor in spirit. That's how he started the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Happy are the poor in spirit. Seems obvious. Opposite, right? Counterintuitive. Happy, poor, those don't go together. Well, what he's talking about there is those who recognize their condition, their lowly state, they come to him and find that joy and happiness in Christ alone. But I gotta say this. This offering of Jesus to be the liberator of our burdens, to, to uh, work on this problem for us, isn't for everybody. He's gentle and lowly, yes, but he's not gentle and lowly to everybody. There is a condition. Look back at chapter 11, verse uh, 21, and then we're going to skip back to the last phrase of 20. Jesus is pronouncing a woe to Chorazin and to you, Bethsaida. And here's why, verse 20. They did not repent. Repentance. Repentance. It starts with seeing your condition and calling it what it is. That's the, that's the idea of, of recognizing your need, stopping and turning to Christ. That's repentance. Jesus' gift of rest comes to only those who, who repent, who admit their burden of sin to those who are truly are poor in spirit who can say that. And here's the wonderful picture. To every single one who does, his heart goes out to them because his heart is gentle and lowly. There's not a trouble. There's not a burden. There's not a sin. There's not a quantity. There's not anything that his gentleness can't overcome. So I understand there might be some confusion. I had a conversation just last hour with someone who's confused about the, the kind of low yoke language that preceded Jesus telling us about his heart, because it starts this way. Perhaps you, um, you saw it. 
where he says, take my yoke, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. Uh, you know what a yoke is. I hope you know. Um, a yoke is an instrument used to burden an animal, sometimes in tandem, sometimes alone. You put a yoke on. You could yoke two oxen together, and they could pull wagons or pull a plow or, or do work, a wagon or whatever. Or you could put a yoke on a single animal, and you burden that animal to do work. And so you hear that word yoke and go, Jesus, I gotta, you're talking about rest, and then you got this thing that only paints a picture of burden to me in this. So how is Jesus' yoke easy? Because that's what he calls it. How is it helpful at all? Well, to understand, you have to know that the word many times, most of the times, is translated um, kind, not easy. So if you could just write in, in this margin here, take my yoke upon you because it is kind. You're closer to what he's intending to say there. Jesus is not saying, I've got to qualify it. He's not saying, take my yoke upon you, take me upon you, and life will be pain-free, trouble-free. There are some places, some people that will teach that God wants you happy and healthy and wealthy and blah, 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 that the whole point of the gospel is to make you not be miserable. And that's just not true. So this, this, this life we have doesn't mean that we avoid pain if we're in Christ. But what he's saying here is that there is this wonderful kindness to the burden of Jesus. In other words, the way Dane calls it, his yoke is truly better understood as a non-yoke, if that helps. And he, he uses an illustration, which I think works. So if you were out in the middle of the ocean and you had no boats and you were just you and you're just trying to survive and you're frailing about in the water and you've been out there for days and you're just barely holding it together and I see you and I come to you in a boat and I throw you a life preserver and you say, get it away from me. Can't you see I'm trying to swim? I got too much to do to worry about that life preserver. Now you're kind of getting the picture. Jesus' burden is meant for freedom and rescue and liberty and joy. And we treat Jesus like he's too much to handle. He's too hard to carry. And he's saying, you don't get it. My burden for you is rescue and kindness. When he talks about the lightness of his burden, again, great illustration he says, like, what helium does to a balloon, so Jesus does to his followers. Yeah, he's in you. Yeah, he's for you. Yeah, he's about you, but he always does good to you. He lifts you. Jesus' gentle and lowly heart for those worn out by their sin doesn't, doesn't mean that we just believe in someone. Here's the great news. The reason why he is liberty, the reason why he's light and easy is because we don't just believe in someone, we get someone. Jesus becomes ours. He climbs down into the mess and he sees life from our angle and he knows what it's like and he sympathizes. He lives in our place of the deepest needs and he cares for us right there. And why? Because he can't help himself. Our Savior loves to do it because his heart is gentle and lowly. That's the good news we talk about all the time. That's the great news. It's so inviting, to be honest with you. It's so otherly, 
compared to everything else that the world has to offer. It's so freeing to see it that way. But there's a question we got to answer. Why is it that we're so quick to forget and neglect the understanding of Christ's heart for us? If he's going to be that transparent about what his heart is, why is it that I have days where I'm so overwhelmed with my burden that I think my burden is what eliminates me from him? What's my problem? Why do I tend to go after other ways when my burdens come? Why do I tend to think he's always disappointed with me? Why do I tend to think that we need to sit this one out until I sort this one out? Why do I feel like I have to make myself presentable before I can come to Jesus? Well, I'll give you a couple reasons. One is that we make the mistake of thinking he's like us. And maybe I'll just, maybe you don't feel this way, but I'm just going to be honest. I watch a lot of YouTube, and most of what I watch is the best of the best. The things that they make documentaries out of are people who win, and people who succeed, and people who are beautiful, and people who have no problems, and people who tell great stories, people who are winners, and wealthy, and successful, and all those types of things. We like that. We notice that. We kind of just look over the lowly. And if Jesus is like me, then whenever he encounters people who aren't like that, successful and powerful and wealthy and pretty, the only thing left is a distorted view of how Jesus operates. Well, he's God, so he's going to have to get with those people. That's what God would do. But he does it by wearing an N95 mask. He didn't want to get contaminated. I'll get in the mess, but... Mm, there's a twisted sense of what we think about Jesus because we think he's like us. But that's not true. Jesus doesn't just endure folks like you and me. He loves to love us, to get close to us in our messes. It is his greatest joy to express his heart. Right? I'll give you another reason why it's hard for us to understand the heart of Christ because we look at Jesus through the lens of our own experiences. And uh, let me just say this, I, I get it. And I'm not even certain that's not sort of the way it's supposed to work. But we have to admit just fundamentally that every one of us, through our lenses, have a distorted view of Jesus. Okay? For instance, I'll, I'll share some examples. If you grow up like I did, in a very fundamentalist, very controlled, very authoritative environment where rules were the, the norm, like don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't go to prom, don't, you know, all the list of don'ts, don't. When we, the first movie I ever saw was Sound of Music, and we had to drive 70 miles to another city to see it because my dad would not be seen in a movie theater. And then he felt guilty that he went. It was maddening, okay, just to get sense. So that I now, after that upbringing, think about God's grace and be overwhelmed that it's freedom and it's grace, do you not understand that my lens of living and experience make that part of Jesus so big in my life? The opposite could be true. Some of you could grow up in total crazyville. There aren't any rules. It's a free-for-all. And you grow up in a hippie commune, and you find Jesus, and suddenly you go, well, he cares about obedience and holiness, and there's moral things to do, and there's righteousness to accomplish. And you go, I love that Jesus, because crazy hurt me, and I don't want crazy, so I'm going to go into law. Some of you have grown up where you've been hurt. You've been hurt by structures or hurt by people or authority. They let you down. They didn't fulfill their obligations. So when you hear Jesus say, I'm going to make things right, I'm going to square everything. 
you love Jesus, that he's going to deal with justice. To you, the only Jesus you care about is the one who makes things right. You understand there's lots of different variations to that, but your, your experience shapes a lens that you see Jesus at. And I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that because they are all bits and pieces and parts of true things about Jesus. He is true and straight. He is one who cares about holiness. He is one who extends unmerited favor, grace to sinners. It's all true. But it does not say anything about his heart. He gets to tell us what he thinks and how he feels. And if you wonder why, we're worn out. If you wonder why we're confused, or from time to time we're convinced he's not happy with us, if you're one of those people who like law, well, you fail at law, you go, uh, <laughs> right? Or if he's the Jesus who squares things and things aren't square, uh, constant. Well, you have an explanation why you're frustrated, because one, you might think that he's like you, or two, you might stop short of thinking right about him. We got to get Jesus right. Would you agree? I mean, the rest of our life is a fight to get Jesus right. In every distortion, in every place it shows itself, we've got to get Jesus right. Turn back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, a very familiar verse to you, but it kind of allows us to have in a description form this heart of Christ, this gentle and lowly Christ on display where he says, when he saw the crowds, that is Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you think Jesus ever sees anything with that in all of us? I mean, we like to think we're smarter than we got it sorted out. Every one of us are confused and scattered, and that's why he comes. He cares. Let me try to build on for you a picture of his compassion on display. These will be very familiar reminders, but hopefully we can look at it again and just be praising him for it. But the first thing I want you to remember that his compassion came to us because he didn't have to. Scriptures tell us that God, he wasn't lonely, everything was great, but God left heaven and took on flesh. He wore the body of a man. He came to this earth in the most humble way. I don't know how much of you uh, ever read Charles Spurgeon. Um, he's called the Prince of Preachers. Um, every word he writes is deeper than anything I think. So uh, he's old English. I've tried this in two services, so I apologize if it doesn't work, but if it doesn't work, you'll forgive me, but let me read this to you. I, I, when I read it, I just cried, because it's such a wonderful picture of his compassion coming to us. Here's what Spurgeon says. He saw the fall of man. He marked the subtle serpent's mortal sting. He watched the, the trail as the slime of the serpent passed over the fair glades of Eden. He observed man in his evil progress, adding sin to sin through generation after generation, fouling every page of human history until God's patience had been tried to the uttermost. And then, according as it was written in the volume of the book that he must appear, Jesus Christ came himself into the stricken world. Came how? Oh, be astonished, ye angels, that ye were witnesses of it. 
and ye men that ye beheld it. The infinite came down to earth in the form of an infant. He who spans the heavens and holds the ocean in the hollow of his hand condescended to hang upon a woman's breast. The king eternal became a little child. Let Bethlehem tell that he had compassion. There was no way of saving us but by stooping to us to bring heaven and to bring earth up to heaven he must bring heaven down to earth. Compassion. What compelled him? His heart. He's gentle and lowly and he came. His compassion not only came to us, it shared with us. You know this, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, familiar with what it's like to be human and to be poor, what it was like to look at people who were overwhelmed with suffering and to cry with those who cry and mourn with those who mourn. The God of all creation did that. He could have come and stayed at a distance. He could have got a mansion on a hill and just said, okay, we got a job to do, but I don't need to get close. And he got in the mess with us. He shared in our poverty. He had no place to lay his head. He was stripped naked and alone on a cross without a friend in the entire world. That's our Jesus. The king of glory didn't have to, but his compassion compelled him. Compassion died for us. There on a cross, beaten and rejected, ridiculed, with nails punched through his hands and feet, the God of glory died with every one of his children on his mind. And what compelled him was compassion. The suffering of sin that we don't even know we're involved in the choices we make that are against his will and against our joy, he pushed it aside and came anyway and suffered for us because of compassion. Compassion dies for us. Compassion also stands for us. The last words of Jesus were, it is finished. Now what is he doing? You know what he's doing, church? He's standing before the Father interceding for you. When you blow it for the 10,000th time, he stands before the Father and says, this one's mine. This one's covered. This is my child. He's pleading for us. He's advocating for us. He's interceding for us. He's declaring that we are the possession of him. He declares the merit of his blood over all his kids for all time and eternity, and he never, ever stops. Every minute of every day of every month of every year of your life, he stands before the Father and says, he belongs to me. Compassion is what moves him. We've seen even in this Matthew passage that compassion is gentle. Spurgeon says this, and I think it's great. His tender heart pities everything that crushes us. I treat it just the opposite. I get angry. And he's so in the weeds with us that he goes, oh. You know, the, the scriptures describe him as the head, 
and we are the body of Christ, right? Every time the body takes a blow, the head feels it. Compassion. Now, I got to say this. Some might say that speaking about his heart and compassion like that kind of tips Jesus out of order. You know, I had somebody just come up last hour, well, talk about the wrath of God. Okay. Yeah, we'll talk about the wrath of God. It's not that I'm against the wrath of God, and clearly is in Scripture that God will ultimately pour out the, the justice that is deserved on sinners who reject his free offering of grace. I get that. I get that. And yes, he will be the judge of all of that. But what we're talking about today is the heart of Christ. And you and I don't have the obligation to balance Jesus. We have the obligation to be biblical about it. So if you're feeling the tension, like, oh, that's too much love, that's too much compassion, give them hell, (laughs) then you're not listening. The only place in Scripture Jesus pulls back the curtain of his heart for you is the words gentle and lowly. Look at it. Listen to it. See the compassion in it. Love him for it. Be at peace with it. Be thankful for it. It is, in other words, impossible to over-celebrate the heart of Christ for sinners. We are not out of order to celebrate the heart of Christ. Everything about Jesus, what he said, what he did, how he responded to people, everything from the beginning to the end, all the way to the cross, it screams one thing. That this brokenness and fallenness we find ourselves in is the reason why he came. And he put on flesh to do it. And the only reason why is because of his heart. Because your problem and my problem is the most irresistibly attractive thing to him. I heard someone share an illustration of a doctor who spent all his life training to solve infectious diseases. And if he ran into patients who just constantly resisted, 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 want the doctor, that if they ever cracked and said, okay, help me, that the doctor's joy would go exceptionally higher because of the joy of meeting the need for which he came. The joy of Christ is tethered to come to your burden. Your burden is irresistibly attractive. The compassion of Christ came for that reason. Does that make sense? Well, let's stop and let's thank God for his gentleness and lowliness and his affections for sinners. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need to stop and just say thank you today. Thank you for the heart of Christ and how it's expressed to us that he came, that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, that he dies, that he intercedes for us, and that he's gentle even as we are in the process of being transformed into his image. I confess in my own heart that sometimes I wander away from that. I think our tendency is to feel uh, the burden without you. And so, Father, help us see from your vantage point how you care, how you love, Father, the conclusion is that we want to praise you and worship you because of it. It's a profound truth that the God of the universe came for this. 
And yet, you came because it is your heart. We thank you for your heart. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.